Welcome to another episode of Only the Penitent Shall Pass podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth. John and I are on a remote location this week at the home of Father Richard Dalton, an Anglican priest, to discuss the Roman Catholic and charismatic renewal of the 1970s. As always, we really appreciate all of our listeners. If you'd like to email us, email us at onlythepenitent at icloud.com. And you can find us on the web at onlythepenitent.com. We really appreciate each of you who listened and shared the show with your friends. If you haven't done so, we would really appreciate you letting your relatives, neighbors, friends know about our show. You can text them the link or just tell them to look up onlythepenitent.com. This week's episode is on the Catholic charismatic renewal of the 1970s. Cardinal Leon Joseph Swins described the charismatic renewal as, quote, not a specific movement. The renewal is not a movement in the common sociological sense. It does not have founders. It is not homogeneous, and it includes a great variety of realities. It is a current of grace, a renewing breath of the spirit for all members of the church, laity, religious priests, and bishops. It is a challenge for us all. One does not form part of the renewal, rather the renewal becomes a part of us, provided that we accept the grace it offers us." End quote. The Catholic Charismatic Renewal of the 1970s was a phenomenally interesting element of 20th century Christian culture. It broke down denominational barriers between Lutherans, Episcopalians, Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterians, and for more than 10 years, you saw Christians in an interdenominational manner worshiping together, praying together, hanging out at each other's houses, and talking about Christ, and sharing the faith, and discipling one another. So join us now in the discussion with Father Richard Dalton, who has a Master's of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary, and is a local Anglican priest in Metro Detroit. We're going to pick up the conversation with John and Father Richard and myself as he begins to share his testimony of how he became a Christian during the beginning of the renewal, and then we'll delve deeper into the historicity of what occurred. And welcome. We are with Father Richard Dalton, live in the flesh on a remote podcast <laughs> in the private of private study i feel privileged you do <laughs> we we could we, we could have gone on the porch too i was going to offer that but this is great yeah um so today so the title <coughs> of the podcast is uh, the charismatic renewal good awesome or bust that's what i'm going to title it has to has to have like a, what do they call it click clickbait yeah to get people hmm good awesome or bust it's called optics i think optics. we need good optics especially <laughs> for father richard okay so we are recording now yes we're recording yeah and um i did 1969 uh 
I really left high school, didn't finish my degree, you know, at Troy. Uh, I had started a, a speaker program in that at the high school and uh, had a lot of folks, Christians, come in and talk to us. Um, and the gospel was shared. Uh, at the same time, I really got into what they were calling sensitive tra sensitivity training at that time. They were they were doing that even back then. Yeah. How yeah. was that like back then? And so not to and, get too side, not to get too sidetracked on leftism, but right. But the um, this was not at Troy High School. This was down at Wayne State University. Oh, okay. Uh, through the educational department, <clears throat> and somehow the press, uh, the professor there, uh, Lyle Crawford, he he wanted me to lead a group, you know, and so I led a group. There are other groups, you know, and uh, because they sensed in something in you that you were very sensitive. <laughs> towards people? I don't, I, I, you know, it was very interesting for the 17, 18 year old kid. Yeah. Um, but it was teachers from around the state coming in to do their educational, you know, uh, get their masters or whatever. Uh, so I had the sense of community really being needed. Uh, and and I certainly didn't see that in any church setting. I was in a very liberal church setting, American Baptist, and so the gospel wasn't stressed. But I'd heard the simple gospel, you know, and maybe a little truncated, uh, you know, ask Jesus into your heart kind of thing, you know, and maybe not the full orbed, you know, Lord and Savior understanding. But I did not see a lot of community going on. So I had these two things working in me. Uh, it was exploring ideas. I would have called myself at that time an agnostic. Um, I mean, were you thinking in terms of community, or is that you looking backwards on time? I mean, if I had I was you, thinking of it. Okay, so you know, because you're coming out of the '60s, <clears throat> and community was a huge emphasis of the whole hippie movement. Right, but I was, yeah, but something a little deeper. Yeah. You know, not drug oriented. Uh, drug thing was not my part of my life, and and I, and I really that didn't make sense to me. Taking something mm -hmm. that would you know connect me to the higher power, the universal truth, or whatever. Uh, so, I hitchhiked uh, from the Smoky Mountains into Washington, D.C. And uh, from D.C., uh, I'm, I'm in D.C., I, I come to, I, I really land over at uh, DuPont Circle and someone was preaching the gospel and it was a young person and uh, 
he they were just winding up so I talked to him and he said well if you want to hear more come to the Washington Hilton Hotel well later that hotel it's been used for the uh, national prayer breakfast over and over through the years but it was also the place where uh, who was it that uh, tried to assassinate Hinckley tried to assassinate yeah. Are you talking about our when president Lincoln, when you when you were a kid? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 yeah, I claimed I sat on his lap, but 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 his beard just tickled, and I just got out of that immediately. You know, Lincoln. So was this like a non-denominational meeting, or what was? No, it? no, I'm getting to that. Oh, okay, sorry. So, and, and my whole thing was finding community and finding truth it was like strange thing so the next morning you you crash at someone's house I mean the day it was the hippie days you could you know uh, doors were open for that sure and so the next morning I walked down to the um, Conrad Hilton Hotel and it was a few miles in the wrong direction. I go into the Hilton Hotel, and they say, oh, "No, that's not the. This isn't the one you want. You want the one Washington Hilton." So, I, um, so and like I say, um, later I I see this hotel really being utilized. Um, but I walk into the hotel and there is this Holy Spirit thing working and walls coming down among Christians. And it was... Uh, what kind of walls? Like, what do you mean? Like denominational walls. Baptist, I mean, you, you mentioned You mentioned the Kansas City thing. This right. is almost like a picture of that. Yeah. In seven years in prior. small, yes, sixty-nine. What is that? When the walls come down, do people just forget people, about the divisions? Oh, or there was a love, and it was kind of flowing, and just people were hungry to, you know, hear from the leadership, but also, but you know, and strangely, you know, in these hippie years, I'm walking in with this beard and long hair and uh, uh, backpack and uh, it's the full gospel businessmen's international conference I don't belong there you know sure. really yeah my dad it's was a not, member later on yeah. it's not my place you know but there was such a welcoming and such an openness it really did impact me so so but before you skip that so for the vast majority of young people now they pretty much all they know is division they're either Lutheran they're Catholic they're Baptist they're charismatic they're non-denominational so to the average person that's why I think John's asking what did it look like um, looked so, like nuns and looked like uh, military uniformed people 
It looked like business suits. Yeah. It looked like long-haired hippies. Hippie Father Richard. It yeah. was no, I mean others Everyone, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know. In the 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 military man and the businessman, they didn't really care that you were a uh, fire out man sort of thing, right? <laughs> so why? So now when it's so difficult to get Baptists, whether free will Baptists, Reform Baptists, Lutherans in the same room, because they just want to argue and bicker over Calvinism or Arminianism or fill in the blank, why weren't they arguing? That's that. that there's the question. Why weren't those doctrinal issues, Catholics who are a little bit more towards the Mary side, but these people who didn't have the exact same doctrinal beliefs? Well, I think you have to go uh, quite a bit before my experience, my personal experience. You yeah. have to go back to the late 50s yeah. when... Uh, who was it? Harold. Um, trying to think of his name. Uh, he was, you know, I think Lutheran or Episcopalian, uh, and the Holy Spirit did a visitation. And then in the '60s, you see this happening and starting to happen in these uh, more established churches, whereas uh, the the gifts and the sense of you know God the Holy Spirit is active today and you know can work in our lives sort of like Spurgeon said where Spurgeon said the Holy Spirit goes in ebbs and flows sometimes the Holy Spirit just doesn't fall down but when it's God's timing is that sort of where you're going but with I, I think very hard to invade yeah. these settings yeah but it was so powerful you know, he did invade those settings, and and the the care the Holy Spirit got out of just the Pentecostal world Cause Pentecost across the tracks, yeah. and that was early 1900s. 1901, Agnes 1901, Osmond, right? Topeka, Kansas. You right? got it. You got it. And a little bit weird. Yeah, we're, we're disconnected. Weird, we're disconnected from from doctrinal. Yeah. Uh, understanding uh, we can play with the trinity we can have a oneness doctrine right. i mean there's a lot of stuff there the pentecostal sort of went in a very mm -hmm. dangerous direction the charismatics weren't trying to make dogmatic we, statements about, about no they were the, they're like it was an experience yeah. thing but in the 60s when you were there um what was the status of orthodoxy were most people trinitarian um, and strong gospel believers, or was there this mixture of? I think basically everyone was Trinitarian. Okay. I, I think the, and part of that's self uh, excommunication, because I think holiness, you know, uh, the oneness movement really isn't open to, Not you know, all. really other, mm -hmm. you know, it's a doctrinal thing that walls them out. Yeah, sure, you know, sure. and that's something that. Well, I mean, Walter Martin was the Baptist was bold enough to say, "The oneness is literally a cult." <laughs> yeah, no, it is yeah. absolutely. You know, and cults are big. right. Some of the story that uh, I, you know, encountered in my life, but uh, so you have this. Through the 60s, you have some 
powerful things happening to people who did have a catechism, who did have a, a confession of faith, who did have historic underpinnings, but and probably uh, probably still a little hard to get into the fighting fundy um, Baptist setting, but not impossible. You know, a lot of our leadership later on was from the Baptist tradition, sure. but they had again, you know, I mean, a little distinctive uh, doctrinal, you know, than than I would or whatever. But you know, it was it was uh, something we can talk about. I mean, believer baptism versus infant baptism. There's There are issues. But the Holy Spirit was working. So I walk into this hotel and it's like it's just a contagious kind of thing going on. Not not just like the contemporary singing, but the teaching, the, the fellowship you're saying. It was I everything. think we were behind in the singing world oh, really? still. Uh, it wasn't anywhere near the kind of music that Evolved we have now, it. right? I, I think because so one of the things that I've always been very focused on is is uh, Paul, where he says, "Do everything to preserve the unity of the brethren." Then there's this historical moment in the 20th century church, where for roughly 10 years, give or take. Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopals, some Baptists, a lot of Lutherans, suddenly the denominational barriers drop momentarily. And there begins to be this unity. So that's what's fascinating. But a little short-lived, you know, and, and, Very, and, yeah. and that's, but that's, uh, you know, I walked into the setting, that's where I came to uh, faith. And that's where I came to, you know, God personally, you know, empowering my life by his Holy Spirit, you know. And uh, I'm afraid that basically the charismatic movement was delegated to the basement on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights and did not I mean it just didn't go in the territory of of some of the you know the life and perspective and you know it sort of became like it, a, an inconvenient a, like a Wednesday night Bible study you're able to do it but do it in a corner here and yeah. let's not talk too much about it and uh, you know it's not going to be you know and we we these days we we talk about the need for the fire uh, to be in a fireplace, yeah, because otherwise it can burn things down. So you you have the automatic promotion of laity, but somewhat disconnected from you know ordained clergy, even in their own setting. You know, kind of rejecting the the historic footings. Uh, because you know it just and I think a lot of air coming into the charismatic setting uh, a lot of uh, 
problems. I've used the I've used the phrase char uh, char uh, maniac, you know, and uh, but when you have suddenly these captains of the ship and and then it did you know they established their own church and that's the american thing anyway isn't it just yeah. mm -hmm. start your own thing rather than to reconnect right. with the historic church start your own thing well, when you do that you're also disconnected from an anchoring a rooting uh you know perspective that's larger than your own so suddenly you it just it's very sad how it went you know on its own you so, know so, so and disconnected go ahead oh i was just it sounds like the holy spirit was driving everyone one way towards a sort of denominational unity which would be anchored in their various traditions but then a lot of people took it in this other way where it's like we're going to have our own church and do our own new thing um, and that sort of was maybe um, the difficulty with it or the downfall of it. Well, I think there were other bigger issues around the evangelical world, too. You had, uh, you know, uh, the book, you know, the Great uh, Great Lake Planet Earth. Right, by Hal Lindsey. Yeah, by Hal Lindsey. Yeah. And I mean, you you couldn't be more wrong right all of <laughs> you his, know all of his prophecies or predictions turned out to be false. the group i ended up with for three or four months i mean california was going to fall into the ocean <laughs> you know it was a millennialism now why did the charismatics adopt you know that the holy spirit was still going on and wasn't a cessationist uh, sort of understanding of you know hey no more Holy Spirit but they totally signed on to the uh, Schofield Bible kind sure. of you know uh, dispensational philosophy yeah. yeah it did not fit no not at all. it was not you know and so very early I came across in Dallas when I was invited to come and be part of a, a you know a group that was trying to evangelize evangelize young people um, I came across the Dallas Theological Seminary and uh, very hotbed of dispensationalism in those days they had a wonderful library and I came across these old hymn books and these hymns they had content theological like, like, and like they the had Wesley hymns beauty or? well Watts okay sure, you know okay. Um, a little earlier than the okay. Wesley's uh, but yeah Charles yeah. Wesley uh, and it made me just fall in love with the historic roots and there was so much in that understand I collect old hymn books you know uh, 
before COVID when you could get into a bookstore. <laughs> before Amazon Co and when there were bookstores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're listening to this in the future, there used to be places that sold only books and you would go there and buy them. And But you could borrow them from, uh, I don't know if I borrowed them or what, you know, or just looked at them at the library. But then I ordered... I ordered this little book, and it was Plymouth Brethren, uh, but it was the f songs for the little flock. Sure, and it was just the words. It was just the words. So, um, and so I, I very early became uh, somewhat reformed in my understanding, Reformation oriented, and uh, I was a bit of a misfit in that way. Yeah. Uh, but we were looking for, you know, some solid leadership. We came across. It, it seems like, because, like, I've spent so much time studying the 1940s and the 1950s churches. It's no wonder that the hippie movement comes out of that, because everyone was complaining that the church was stale, that there was no community, there was no fellowship. The charismatic movement comes along. There's this emphasis on community, maybe not enough emphasis on theology maybe not enough emphasis on the leaders teaching sound doctrine but the established churches even though even rome rome the pope at the time he quote unquote blessed the charismatic renewal and said yes this is of the holy spirit that's why there were so many roman catholic he, i think the pope was afraid he was going to lose the american church because so many were were joining the renewal but it seemed as you said they said they wanted to relegate it to the basement it seems to me, and this is leading my question, established churches, e even non-denominational at this point, Lutheran, Episcopal, it seems like they're not too keen on fellowship and community unless it's organized into a meeting. A spontaneous community. Or a project. Or a project. But you know, but we're going to do a you know, big project for the city. Yeah. For certain area, but it, I mean the nineteen. We're going to fill a stadium. The nineteen sixties and seventies. It's not organized community. It's people are suddenly becoming to Christ. They're living in each other's neighborhoods. They're sleeping just, on each other's couches. You just said you just. There's always a place to stay. People are hanging out with each other. Well, that was just in the hippie. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was in the hippie world. Yeah. yeah. But it just seems like the established church is very resistant towards community. Why? Well, I think the silos are are there. I think, you know, I think it's... I mean, we have corporate kind of structures going on in our churches now. Yeah. Um, I think the parish model is a beautiful model where it's small enough that you can have real community um, among your own people. Right. I think you got to start there. Sure. If you don't start there and with families and, and that, you know. But it, we got to go beyond that too, you know. Uh, Father, that they may be one as we are one. Right, yeah. That the world may know. Well, the world don't know. And we aren't one. And this is, but you know, it's a paycheck. 
and I'm doing fine and Sundays and I got my hands full and uh, the typical pastor you know doesn't have the the time the resource I think you know I've got a pastor not too far and and uh, he uh, I don't know if it's weekly or every other week. I mean, he's with, you know, some black brothers in Detroit. Every They just have time together. Right. You know, it's personal. It's real. It's It can't just be, uh, you know, we believe the same thing. There's this, oh, you know, was Aphroditus and, oh, if we'd lost him. You know, he was so sick, Paul writes. He was so sick. Uh, but God spared him, lest we should have sorrow upon sorrow. That spells a deep relationship. Absolutely. You know, John, you know, next to Jesus, that. you know, a deep relationship. It's but we don't know that. And, and, I think a lot of these kids don't know that. They know they know meetings, they know youth groups, they they know conferences. Cell phones. <laughs> they know cell phones. Oh, and, um, Zoom. And, they know Zoom. And, <laughs> and six feet away. Right. And I was wondering the other just this morning. I mean, is this you know, relationally we're being? I mean, right now. I mean. In the last few years, a cell right. phone has somewhat robbed us we, we had, we from had, our real relational life. We had uh, Pastor Sean, on, mm-hmm. and one of the things he mentioned was both Jesus and St. Francis hugging lepers. <laughs> and now we've basically been outlawed from hugging the sick. Yeah, but Sean knows nothing of because he has a flip phone. Right, <laughs> he's, still, he's still with a flip phone. Uh, he, so how can he speak into the culture today? He um, I I, I emailed him before. <laughs> I know he does the email if you're listening. <laughs> um, uh, the Baptist minister John Piper he wrote a book about I don't know maybe ten fifteen years ago, uh, titled "Brothers, We Are Not Professionals." Almost every chapter is awesome. And it was written to pastors. And it was calling them to go beyond just being business managers of the churches. Doesn't seem to have made much of a dent, though. Because everything still looks the same. The parish model isn't really blossoming blossoming with great community. Well, isn't it a lot of it's... The parish model was... Like, a parish is a geographical region... Where in the old world, everyone would have known everyone else. And now we have this notion of a commuter church. So I think it's hard for us to say, let's get back to the real parish model where the parish is the people in your neighborhood and you see them all the time. And then from that springs the authentic Christian friendship that Father Richard was just speaking of, this authentic relationships see, or something see, like that. See, now, when my, 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 for those who don't know, my parents, we met... Richard or Father Richard when I was very young I was four years old 
uh, he was the one of the leaders of the church. And you're a problem child at that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we never got away from you being a, a difficult his, one. His sarcasm was just as strong back then. I remember as a four-year-old, I got hit, and I was I went to a Tigers game, and uh, a Kansas City Royal base uh, batter swung his bat, lost the grip, the bat went flying into the crowd, and smashed me in the forehead. And the next two days later at church, I can't remember the words, but to this day I still remember Richard making a sarcastic comment about the size of my head as a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I was going to say was, uh, uh, Dr. Siffering, one of the other uh, pastors at the church, when my parents first started going there, we were living on the east side. We had just moved here from Chicago. And he had encouraged them, my parents, to move to Rochester because he thought well the best way to have the, any semblance of community was to live as closely that that was kind of the vision and the 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 focus I was concerned about it a little bit because right. and eventually moved closer to the city right. uh, proper but it, it does make sense for the Christians to and my dad and mom having come from Chicago they, they were a part of a church that they walked to the building. It was part of the charismatic renewal, too. It was no problem for them because they they fell in such love with some of the people at the church. That they thought, Except well, for the guy who hit you with a yes. bat. Did I hit you with a bat? I was thinking I was playing for the Royals so, back then. So, so all these years later, 40 years later, I'm asking a simple question. I, this isn't as much theological as it's philosophical. Why wouldn't we as the church encourage the believers to live close together no one does instead i've talked to i won't name all the pastors no 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 he's yeah this off he's off but i don't he's, know he's yeah. off there because we have a in rochester in rochester yeah. we have a group and this gets into the culty kind of stuff yeah. that's going this goes on and sure. how you can get turned inward and it, and that's a problem too sure that's why I, I advocate parish and cathedral you know and I, that's the model so but even cathedral meaning a local body of Christ be concerned about your metro you know the bigger yeah. picture but also you know have this real community life yeah you know and so kind of like big church, little church. In a way, yeah. yeah. And if you go to uh, Anna, Al and Canapel and, and the church, you know, uh, the church in Livonia, his church, uh, they call their small groups little church. Now, some my concern is how do we do that? How do we, you know, with people's schedule and all and how to get you know, like a even a a mega church that's pushing small groups. If they can get thirty percent of their people in the small groups, you know, uh, they're doing fantastic. Well, that's not fantastic. No, not at all. Real church means, you know, you're part of a smaller and but you know you're part of a. It, it doesn't have to be the model we're talking about. Uh, I think there's a particular church 
uh, that does it through, you know, the choir or this group or that group. So at least you feel some sense of identity. But in a way, that's, that's still not the same as bear one another's burdens. Well, but that's what and I was, so fulfill right. the law of Christ. So that's that's what I was thinking in the context <clears> of forty <throat> years ago in Rochester at, at that church, is that my parents lived on the same street as was that a deacon? I don't even know if he had a title. The Brigham Ed Brigham. Right. Um he was my dad's small group leader. They lived two doors away from us. His kids babysat us, his daughters babysat us all the time. My mom was a 27, 28 year old woman that had a bunch of kids and the church was able to literally envelop my parents who were just come here from Chicago they have a slew of kids and the church was able to bear my parents burdens in many ways that couldn't have been born if they were living 45 minutes away and it's interesting that those roots and those relationships uh, Ed and Shirley Brigham are some of our dear friends and we talk on a regular basis you know now they live you know far away now yeah but the roots you know uh, but it wasn't okay so I'm back to the concern so we had a group that spun off, nothing to do with our group, but I don't, and I don't even know when they did this in the 60s or whatever. I don't know when they, the history of this, but in Rochester, in fact, that little corner, there's an interesting thing, right, at Livernois and University, there kind of is some culty stuff that's gone on, um, yeah. even back to the 1800s. But I didn't know it went that far. This group, some of the modern this stuff. group, and they built their houses, and they wanted community. They wanted that closeness, right? And uh, so they named the streets New Life and New Love Lane. <laughs> and uh, I think twelve years later, twenty years later, I don't remember. They're not talking to each other. <laughs> it's an old love you know, now. It's an old love now. I don't know. But, you know, it, there's more to that story. Sure. Lauren and I did go and visit the leader there one time. Or I mean, we, we knew of him, and we did have some interaction. And what, it, what they'd done was lovely in terms of their buildings. But we got to get beyond the buildings. We get, you know, rolling out. And I think the Anglican world, it's very interesting. And you know, Roland Allen is a early missionary in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, and uh, you know, he talks about lay leadership. We gotta get beyond where you have to have a collar to gather folks because sure. you'll never you'll never be able to do it with just and I think even in the evangelical church, the you know, the super church, the Methodist church, whatever, uh, 
too much just is on the pastor and they're not going to get to the outreach absolutely and the call to our culture that we need to touch and we need to reach so so by the by the 19 by 1980 1985 the charismatic renewal is is slowly dissipating um when from 80 to 85 it slowly begins dying out Okay, well, let's take a little detour. Uh, You mentioned the Kansas City. Kansas City, 1977, uh, August. uh, Over 50,000 people come. It's 45% Roman Catholic, 20% Lutheran, 25% non-denominational, and then a bunch of other denominations in there. It's It's the largest ecumenical gathering. I could be wrong for the purpose of praise and worship and teaching in the history of the country. Yeah. Possibly the largest. Yeah. Until Promise Keepers comes along, which is something completely different. Um, so that was 1977. And that was really leaders. Uh, I mean, Christensen was there. Larry Christensen Larry was Christensen. there. Bob Mumford Bob was Mumford, there. Bob Mumford, Charles Simpson. Uh, there was a Roman Catholic cardinal, I believe, was there. A Roman okay. Catholic priest. They had quite a few Lutherans. Ranahan, what's the... Uh, Yes. Catholic. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, and Christensen was Lutheran, wasn't he? And then the Christensen, I think, was Lutheran. Yeah. Uh, and then the Ann Arbor group um, Word of God community. Yeah. Uh, because of our proximity, you know, we, we knew them and, you know, had some relationship um, as a fellowship we're, we're here we are in Rochester that was Ann Arbor um, and we were getting these and I mentioned to you it's just interesting um, you know people have these real to real tapes yeah and you know but I mean it was the high fidelity geeky world people it was no computers around but you know real to real but suddenly um the cassettes cassettes from phillips of eindhoven out of holland uh introduced the cassette tape and these were very easy to have and to put in a machine and and to mail and so we had a tape of the month, and it was teaching-oriented. And it was a wonderful teaching tool. And then a couple guys down in Mobile, both of whom I knew pretty well, thought, well, why don't we do this with music? <laughs> and we, we could go to a church and you know basically charismatic church and we could record their music session you know or the congregational music time and then we could send that out and we'll call hosanna music right anyone in the 1980s or 90s evangelical world 
uh, was familiar with Hosanna music and in Marathana and, music. and Marana, Marathana right. and Marathana what came Marathana out, Marathana came okay. out of what my parents were a part of out of Chicago and California right that was uh, the um, uh, gospel outreach uh, those were and but that it, music exploded that music was suddenly getting in Baptist settings uh, you know mainline settings, Catholic settings, very interesting. Uh, and most of it, and you know, when you think of music, you, you know, you think of, oh, that's a lovely tune, and oh, he or she has a great voice, but I mean, ho hopefully it's also God-centered, because we have so much of the me, me, me kind of stuff going on. And uh, but most of what they had was very God-centered, worship-oriented, and it infected a whole a lot of folks, you know, in their own churches. So it kind of mirrors some of what was happening just directly by the Holy Spirit years before that. But suddenly, and, and now, I mean, I think... You know, here's worship time. Well, it's also all, all, all it has to be music. Well, you know, worship time's way beyond just the music. Absolutely. You know? uh, and it's a mistake to just say, well, well and, that's and, the worship. And also, a lot of the more contemporary music was, I want to say the majority of it was occurring in people's homes. I mean, when you look at um, Keith Green, who died, uh, the, right. who wrote all, so many evangelical songs. The majority of the worship was just ha hang people hanging out at each other's houses, uh, and then the services were often a little still more liturgical. Not all of them were liturgical, but that's what my parents always remembered: was five days a week being at people's houses. Someone would have a guitar, and they'd start singing. No, this was this was, a lot of it was music that was original. It was contemporary. Uh, it was guitar oriented, whatever. But it certainly tuned a lot of hearts, you know, t to the Lord and upward, you know. Uh, but no, you've got a lot of, a lot of, yeah, like you say, I mean, today, where are we with the unity, the sense of really doing things together, uh, loving one another, working together. It's almost like we're more competing sometimes, you know. Uh, and people are going from church to church, you know, and we're not reaching the folks that we're really called to reach. Well, that's that's what I've thought for a long time with the mega churches is that they're just shuffling the deck. Every, every couple of years, they shuffle the deck of, 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 uh, of uh, parishioners and they disperse to different churches, and then you shuffle it again, and then they go to different churches again. And I, I and I, I think people get excited when they can fill the stadium, or fill a large room. Mm -hmm. But I, for me, that's a cathedral experience that should happen once in a while. You know, it's not the that's fine, not the but it's not normal. It's not the normal church life that we're looking for. You know, that's my own opinion. So, so by the 1980s, the charismatic renewal slowly starts to fade a little bit. Now, charismatic churches, they they continue on, which is a little. We're not 
focusing on the charismatic churches of today, but more the renewal itself. Um, was it just the Holy Spirit slowly, the ebb and flow, as Spurgeon says, or is it more just man got in the way? We always get in the way. <laughs> That's what we do. We get in the way. That's right. We're always in the way. We're sinners. We're fallen. And so, but sometimes we talk our way out of it and we think we're, oh, we're the real thing. You know, I mean, it's, I just feel we're missing something without the whole. Mm -hmm. The body of Christ, many members, you know, and when I suddenly exclude the church down the street, I don't know if you've read much of uh, of uh, Odin, Thomas Odin. One book. But he talks about, you know, even every branch of the church has a certain thing to bring, whether it's the priestly ministry or the kingly ministry of Christ, you know, or the... Uh, prophetic ministry of Christ you know we need all those you know all the offices of Christ when no one church is gonna more fully you know do the th the the full office of Christ you know so we need to do it together you know and I think I've been very disappointed in the in the fragmentation and the alienation that we that we have from each other and and John 17 kind of it demands it that we would be one you know it prays Jesus prays for it that may, they may be one yeah. as you and I father are one I mean that's a that's a serious but it uh yeah, to go. Uh, so, did I miss your question? No, no. The, the the whether for the good or bad, every single person I've talked to who was in a part of the renewal back in the '70s and early '80s, it played a major role in their life. In fact, it was one of the most monumental moments in their church life. Some of them are still bitter to this day. <laughs> Many of them are not bitter, but it was what brought them to Christ. So it, what's, for, what's interesting is Charles Simpson, you mentioned him a couple times, he, only a couple months ago was, it, was the very first public interview he ever gave 40 years later over the discipleship movement during the charismatic renewal because so many people have either vitriolic or good you know, it, it was, it, it, I guess the, what I'm, where I'm going with this is the renewal really affected people for good and bad, unlike other movements in the last couple decades. So that's what I find interesting about it. And I wonder if the reason it was so profoundly effective is because it conformed to what Jesus wanted, unity in the church. So Satan recognizes it. He says, well, hold on a minute this is the first time in the 20th century all the denominations are putting down 
their walls. And so perhaps that's why there were, there's so much good and bad, was that Satan could not allow that to continue. Am I going in a weird direction with that thought? Uh, no, and I think a lot of that disappointment you know, in the charismatic movement, when, when people really gave themselves to leadership, you know, or to a movement, um, I think a lot of it is, uh, yeah, the failure of leadership. For us, I think it was, sometimes we were seeing folks promoted that shouldn't have been in those positions. Um, seminary is not the key, but got to be rooted. At least it gives some. And to structure. be to be rooted and to be read. I'm talking to a pastor that pastored quite a while in Troy. And he was part of the oneness movement. But I think it applies to a lot of folks today anyway, you know, where the their faith is uh, an inch deep and a mile long, you know, whatever, mile wide. And he grew up oneness. And uh, people have asked him... Uh, how did you get out of that? Why did you leave that? You know, he says, "I learned to read." <laughs> <laughs> I learned to read. You read the Bible, I guess. You know, well, the Bible, but yeah. you know, some historic. You know, I mean, the Reformation was a gift. Absolutely. You may focus on this right now. You know, the charismatic movement. But the charismatic movement without the Reformation... Oh, sure. You know, it has to... The Holy Spirit and the Word. And we need both. And, uh, no, there's different ways to get it, you know. There's different ways to be trained and to be brought into ministry. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm very suspicious of some of the seminary doors. Uh, and now we're in a very unique culture and time. We haven't done a real good job in touching the culture or, um, well, now you have Christians who are afraid to touch people in the culture <laughs> and that is I'm looking at the time, so we are all out of time. So thank well, it's you. Been, it's been fun. Uh, I was a little intimidated. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, you're a tr tremendous uh, reader. I've read a couple books. You've read a couple books. I'm just learning. This guy's <laughs> learning. This guy's learning. But it's privileged to have some discussion. Definitely. And with that, it is a wrap. All right. Five, four, three two, one. And welcome again to another episode of Only the Penitent Shall Pass podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth, alongside with me, as always, Master John Fellis. Hello, John. Hello. How's everyone doing? Thank you, everyone. appreciate when you sh share our episodes with your friends. We want to get the discussion rolling. 
We want to talk to people about God and culture and philosophy. So email us with your thoughts, questions at onlythepenitent at icloud.com. Today's episode is aptly titled, if I don't say so myself, Does God Still Heal People? Here we are at the three, three and a half month mark of the epidemic of Corona and you and I were just talking earlier about someone we know, their mother is afraid of germs and afraid of getting sick. I've talked to a lot of people over this period of time and there's just a great fear. Now, we can easily say, well, fear God. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Fear, you know, we should just fear God. We shouldn't fear flus and fear colds or sicknesses. We want to step up that thought to this greater thought, does God still heal people? Um, because if as Christians we read the New Testament, it seems like Jesus is healing people left and right. Yeah, um, and when we read those stories, there's supposed to be a sense of great hope, right? Where on the one hand, they conceal this greater mystery that God's going to heal us spiritually and give us eternal life. Um, but then on the other hand, the church has always believed these are literal healings. And that when we pray, God hears our prayers, and if it's in accordance with his will, he heals us, right? So sometimes this takes the form of very miraculous happenings. Other times you just naturally recover from sickness. But we always give thanks to God and attribute the healing to him. And now it seems this third thing is sort of entered in and complicated things, which we generally just call science. So we generally put our hope and trust in that a doctor through scientific means will heal us. And if the doctor says, I don't know what to do, I, I can't heal this sickness, it tends to cause people a lot of fear and a lot of despair. And if you don't believe in Christ, I could see why that may be the case. Well, what else do you have besides the, the doctor? Right. Um, let, let me jump in there. There was a sentence you said, we pray in accordance with God's will. So anyone who, even a lot of non-Christians know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy, and then there's that sentence right there, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray for someone to be healed, when we pray for for requests we put before God, we always preface it with "Thy will be done." We're not we're not telling God you're going to do this. We're not demanding He do this. We put it before Him, and then just like David, like like actually, we were talking. I think you mentioned this earlier, John. Some people don't realize how how King David writes and prays in a really rough manner. Yeah. What 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 were you saying earlier in in along those lines? Uh, let me think exactly. Um, King David, he seems very distressed that the the evil are winning. Yes. And when people and when these evil people are doing evil things, he's now what we'd call a nice guy. He calls the Lord to destroy them. Right. In, um, in, in one of the Psalms, David cries out to God and says, "Take the en take my enemy's baby and bash its heads out on the rocks." Right. Yeah. So David was a warrior, right? And if yeah. You know, think about ancient warfare; it gets extremely violent in the way that uh, Kenny just described. Um, and so now you look at the church today, 
And I feel like if anybody talked like even close to what David did, they would say, well, that's offensive. That's not nice. But I mean, we're talking about an inspired writer here. Yeah. Right. There's, so there's this sense where... Um, inspired. And at the end of his Psalms, he, he always follows it with he cries out to God he he says these are what i'm requesting do this lord kill my enemy kill my enemy's child and then he'll undoubtedly always end with but thy will be done he says it in different ways but he's always saying ultimately lord i know that your will needs to be done this is what i feel this is what i'm asking but your will be done god right and there's always and there's really in a lot of psalms he talks about the Gentiles, right, will be blessed through, you know, through God, right, through the Jewish people. They will be blessed. So there's also a sense of hope where, although he, although he's enemies with these people, through their repentance, they can be reconciled, right. And that's who most of us here in America who are Christians, we are the descendants of those Gentiles, non-Jews. Right? Non non, yeah, Gentiles just means. Uh, non-Jews, the, the, the nations, right, yeah. would be the way we would translate, another way to translate that, right? Um, so there's so there's great hope. What was the point you were going for here with, well, the, with David? Well, David, just like with a prayer, he may pray in a psalm, Lord, please, you know, chastise my enemy, please kill my enemy, but thy will be done. And we might pray, Lord, please heal this malady, please heal this infirmity, but thy will be done. So we always preface our prayers with the sovereignty of God. We believe God still heals. We believe that when he chooses, he heals, right? Yeah. But we pray, but thy will be done, because Jesus taught us that in the Lord's Prayer. Right. And, and you know, so it's kind of, it's really hard for us, I guess, to wrap our heads around where it's like, God says, and David says this over and over again, that God hears our prayers. So part of... Part of us receiving good things in this life requires our asking of them. And sometimes it tells us how to ask for them, right? So this is, um, you know, in James right here, and, you know, since we're talking about the sick, right, James addresses this in chapter 5. Um, is, any, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And... and most of the denominations I know of, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Catholics, they all understand the, what James is saying there to mean if someone's sick, you're supposed to bring them to the church leaders and anointing them with oil means they take literally oil, olive oil usually, and because it has symbolic meanings historically, they put the olive oil on the minister's fingers and then they touch the forehead of the sick person and they pray, Lord, you know, if the person has uh, cancer, whatever, you know, the flu, corona, whatever that is, they, they then pray, Lord, please heal this person of cancer, corona, but thy will be done. Yes. Right. That's that's what I've been taught my whole life. Right. And um, it's so I think it's when the spirit of fear comes on us, it's it's hard to imagine that 
death is anything but the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. Um, but if you know, if you're a student of history, you, you think about well, if somebody somebody dies right before World War II begins or something like that, a lot of times God is calling people home. It's not because we for, have for this the Christian death hope. isn't the end. It's not the end. And so because there's this eternal hope and this eternal memory of us, we're just, you know, we, we really can adopt a different attitude towards it. While at the same time saying, wow, God really does heal the sick, right? Again, sometimes it's, it seems more natural. Sometimes maybe it's miraculous. I, so you mentioned science before. I think two phenomenon occurred in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries. You had these faith healers come up. Uh, who had different, under different guises. Some of them called it name it and claim it, that whatever they claimed in faith, they would receive, and it's considered a heresy. You also had the birth of modern science, and much of modern science is heretical. It's anti-God because it's based in atheistic presumptions that we come from what eternal matter that were not created in the image of God. Some science is good. A lot of it is junk science because it's atheistic. So you have faith healers and science pop up in the last couple hundred years. And I think it, it confuses a lot of the Christians because they don't want to be lumped in with the faith healers that are heretical. And they also are pressured by the atheist scientists and suddenly we 2020 comes around and the entire church in mass stops praying putting their hands on the sick right like th this is what you and i are trying to wrap our, our our brains around is that wait a minute a part of the liturgical worship to god is the anointing of the sick with oil R right and so people what will they say they'll say oh well they had less knowledge in the past. And it's like, okay, well, I, I think we both think that's questionable, how like um, people's view of the past and how much knowledge they have. But even working with that presupposition, it's like Jesus was God, right? The words of James I just read here are inspired, right? Does God know the germ theory of disease, right? Does God know how these things work? Well, obviously he does right so all knowing all powerful omnipotent yeah. sovereign so i mean if we're just being reasonable here it's like listen like god knew what he was doing all right and so sure we can use prudence right whatever and we can argue about what that means but ultimately we should strive to do what the bible says right we should strive to do what god is telling us to do which is anoint people with oil, right? Um, I, I think so much of it is like you were saying that science as it's presented to us is fundamentally atheist, right? There are parts of, you know, this whole body of science that has been amassed over 300 years that, it's, that are definitely true, right? Just by their own, you know, observable merits, right? Um, but when you create this whole worldview where it's like, the germ basically replaces the old world superstition where you have literally millions of people that are terrified of this thing they can't see. They're wearing masks all over the world. Sure. And a good scientist will, yeah, right. And, and a good, you know, and a good scientist will tell you like, well, you know, um, there's this germs, you know, if you're, you know, if you're exposed to germs, 
it actually builds immunity, right? right? If we're all hiding away in our homes and we're not coming into contact with the virus, that gives um, the virus a chance to mutate, right? So these are even the scientific theories that are proposed by, like we say, mostly atheists, go against the spirit of fear. And it seems like we're at the point where the, quote, scientific authorities aren't even following their own methods very well. So there's two points we're trying to hit home today and really focus on. Point number one, does God still heal? We both agree God does heal. God is sovereign. He doesn't heal every time we pray. But we're in point two, we're commanded to pray for the sick. Not only are we commanded to pray for the sick, we're commanded to lay hands on the sick and anoint them with oil. Now that does in the day we're living, the government is telling us we live in a state where the government has ordered us not to lay hands on the sick. They've told us stay six feet apart. They've said wear a mask and wear gloves if you're close to people. As Christians, this is really the first time in my life I have to openly defy the government because it's going against not my beliefs, but God's clear word. Yeah, I mean, what does Paul say? He says, greet the brothers with a kiss, the kiss of peace. Right? Great, great point, which is actually a part of the liturgy of Anglican churches, Roman Catholic churches, Baptist churches, and we, charismatic yeah. and non-denominational churches. In, in Western culture, we don't do the kiss of peace. That's in Eastern culture. We do. We, we have the handshake. handshake. Yeah. In the service, almost every church I've, I've ever been a part of their worship service, they have a moment where, this, where Paul's admonition of greeting each other with peace occurs, where they stop the service, you shake hands. And the government is telling us, don't do that because of their germs theory because of their science right right yeah and so it's kind of like we can use reason too and if we reason through what they're telling us even a lot of non-christians well maybe especially non-christians it seems are questioning this official story right this official narrative right but as christians we can sort of set that aside and we can say Listen, maybe what it really means to love someone is not to hide from them and cause the spirit of fear to emerge, but to embrace them, right? Not presumptuously saying that, oh, God, if you're true, if you're truly God, you can prevent disease, but just have hope in our hearts that God's going to work out everything to our good if we do as he tells us, right? Um I think maybe that's what we're trying to get at is something along those lines, you think? Well, for, for me, God healing people is a big deal because I believe God heals people and I know that God heals people. God is alive today every bit as much as he was alive yesterday and 2,000 years ago. If we believe in God, if we're a Christian church that believes in God, in order to demonstrate to the world that God is there, and that he's not silent, we have to lay hands on the sick. We have to touch the sick. We have to anoint them with oil and pray that they would be healed. That's the way as Christians, we demonstrate God is real. Right, so what you're saying is, um, you know, it says no man has ever seen God except the Son, right? Well, 
one of the ways we get to know the Son and that we come to truly believe in Him is to live like Him, right? Yes. Um, and so this is, I mean, this is sort of what's at stake here. It's like, well, do we really believe in Christ? You know, where, and it's one thing, like, if you feel awkward, you know, when you're in a community and it, it takes a long time to live the Christian life. So we're not saying, you know, well, no, it's, it's hard for me to do this or that. Like, okay, we understand, you know, everyone has their own problems they struggle with. But what we seem to be seeing in the church is the repudiation of this, of the Christian life. We know, right? we know of churches that have reopened in the last few weeks and they've stopped doing the uh, greeting of peace. They've stopped laying hands on the sick and anointing them with oil. And we're sitting here questioning, well, how can you believe in Christ and not obey Christ? Right? I mean, Christ says, you know, those who obey him, he calls friends. Those who follow him, not the people who disobey him. <laughs> right. And like, as I'm saying, like, and people are being taught to disobey him. They're being taught to social distance and not touch the sick. Yet, as Christians, the way we demonstrate that God is there is by touching the sick. It's the exact opposite phenomenon that's occurring in a great many churches right now. And I can't help but ask the question, if you're social distancing as a Christian and not touching the sick, are you not denying Christ, that, that God is there? That, that Aren't you denying that God heals? Because a part of the liturgy a part of the process of God healing people is bringing them before the leaders of the church, laying hands on them. Now, we can pray for people from afar that we're not near. I can pray for my grandmother down south. We're in different states. But when they're sick among us in our congregation, when they're sick among us in our neighborhoods, the way we demonstrate that God is there is we bring them and we pray for them and we lay hands on them and we anoint them with oil. That's how we demonstrate to the world that God is there. And at this moment in history, the church en masse appears to be denying that Christ is there. They seem to be denying the power of God. Well, and it, it only, it almost goes like the he, let, let me pray, the healing power The of God. healing power. Well, I'm th I've been thinking about this, about the ritual purity laws in the Old Testament, which, of course, um, a lot of them we, we no longer think of as in, fact, in effect because Christ fulfilled them, right? So this is why we go out and we hug the leper, right? Yes. Like France, we are always going to keep talking about St. Francis here. We have a statue of him right here, actually, <laughs> with the birds and the deer right here. Um, but... It goes beyond where they're... I can understand, like, okay, let's quarantine the sick. This is actually what the word quarantine means. You don't quarantine the well. Like, yeah. that's why there's already this very bizarre version of reality and medical history yeah. going on, right? Um, so you quarantine the sick, and it says the elders will go to them, right? Which is what you're saying isn't happening. We're, we're now presuming that everybody is sick. So we're sort of treating them like... 
like the outcast or something which like everyone sort of becomes the outcast right and it's uh that i i hope people will like spend some time considering this this notion that well we're all sick or we're all unclean or something and and just how strange it is and just try to wrap your head around this and just realize that this generally isn't how medical authorities handle this and this isn't how the church generally handles it either right um as far as i can tell it's like this uncharted territory and we have to remember that everything has religious connotations and we have to start thinking like thinking that right if we're going to survive through this we're going to have to say like wait is this, do these people have some sort of secular religion you know like that's it's probably not something we want to be a part of. We probably want to avoid religions that aren't the true Christian religion as Christians, right? So, so, in, so Paul, in his letter to Timothy, Paul's basically discipling Timothy, a younger man. Paul writes to, to Timothy, and I'm not going to go over the whole chapter, but I'm just going to pull out one little sentence here. Uh, he says, this is why I remind you uh, to to fan the flame of of the gift of God, which is in in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul laid hands on Timothy to bless him in, in becoming a pastor. So it, and the laying on of hands is very significant in both the Old Testament and New Testament. It's such a rich part of our Christian heritage, physical touch. Paul continues on. He says to Timothy, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So here he's telling Timothy, remember Timothy, I laid hands on you. I prayed for you and the Holy Spirit right, came upon you. And, and therefore, through the laying on of hands, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Timothy, you don't have to, to, be, to have a spirit of timidity to, or, or to be timid because God has given you strength, power, love, courage, you know, I could, I could add more adjectives to it. Corona seems to be exposing some very serious flaws in the fabric of Christendom, right? I mean, that's, that's where we're walking a delicate line here. We don't want to go too far to, the, to, to one side and, and condemn the whole thing. But I think we're both pretty safe and sane Christians who are not laying their hands on the sick Christians who fear sickness need to go back and read the Apostle Paul they need to go see what Jesus did because any spirit that's telling you to be afraid of sickness and to not touch the sick it's not the Spirit of God it's a spirit from someone else it smells like smoke and it's straight from the pit right right well yeah and that's what we sort of keep driving home if you look at the his the you know the intellectual history of the last few hundred years the whole scientific project that we've inherited at least for the last 200 years fundamentally is atheistic so as christians we just have to sort of say listen being an atheist is a bad thing because god really does exist so if that's the ground upon which all of this is built, 
sure there might you might find some truth in it like the germ the, the you know the germ theory of disease like of course it has merit right okay but we can't get swallowed into that scientific world because there's really no god there right we have to realize we have to be in the the real world which was created by god where there's where there's order and beauty but more importantly there's a manual there's god who's with us in our day-to-day -day lives right um and so i think maybe that's i think there's this huge confusion in the church and that's why you know like you said we're not obviously we're not here to condemn people but maybe we're here just to ask you like consider what has happened over the last few months and don't just say oh well i'm safe and i'm doing everything right like that's not what Christians are supposed to do either. We're supposed to repent every day. We're supposed to reform our lives constantly. We're supposed to constantly say, oh, what am I doing wrong, right? Not like, oh, look, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing just like the atheist authorities told me. It's like, what? Like, what? Well, what is that? You I, know? I had a conversation with someone the other day and they said, what's your problem with COVID-19? He says, it seems like you have a problem. I said, I don't have a problem with you know with sickness i said i'm a christian i'm not afraid of sickness at all and to which he said no 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 i mean it seems like you you think that this is all wrong what we're doing i said i i said I, whatever the secular world whatever the godless atheists do is of no concern to me in the material sense i mean i i care for atheists i love people but whatever they want to do with their lives is between ultimately between them and god and what I told this person was, my problem is, is with the church. I said, as a Christian, I'm commanded to do these things, to pray for the sick, to be around the sick, to touch them, to, to, put, to put my hands on them, to, 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 to physically be close to the sick in order to demonstrate that God is there and God's not silent. And, I'm cons and I told him, I'm very concerned that the church is denying God. Because I see churches opening up finally after three months and they're mandating that everyone has to social distance. The ministers are staying away from the people. This is frightening to me because it seems like the verse is a little bit apropos that they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So it's not enough to look like a church we have to acknowledge the power of God. Right, yeah, I mean, you're, you're making me think what Paul says. We don't, we don't, we're not coming with plausible words of wisdom. I think he says something like that yeah. in First Corinthians. Um, we come here with power and spirit, right? Um, so if you're listening to us and you're thinking, well, yeah, but it sounds a little absurd because, you know, I, list, I took a biology class or something, or I took a sociology class or something. It's, um, we're kind of saying, you know, we're not saying, we're not denying right reason or intellectualism or anything like that. You know, obviously we both, we like to study philosophy and history and science very much, both of us, right? You know, it's very important. But what we're saying is ultimately there's something greater than that. So whatever you learned in college, whatever it was, there's something greater than that, and it is the power and the wisdom of the Spirit, right? The foolishness of God is greater 
than the wisdom of man, right? And so I think a lot of people get hung up on Bible verses that talk about power or spiritual power. And they think it's some kind of mystical energy that exists. Like in, in the, an anime song. Exists, like, I have the power. Yeah, sure. That exists in the invisible world. But when, when I read the, the Bible and see verses like, don't deny the, the power of God. Don't, don't deny the, the power that God has in healing. I see this as, oh, it's about we should walk in confidence. Sometimes it's about the invisible qualities, the invisible power of God. But... In, in a practical sense, it's about, well, I should be close to people. I should put my hands on the sick. If I don't, I'm denying God's power, his authority over the sick. Because, because I think that's what Jesus embodied in his life on the earth, that he had authority over demons. He had authority over sickness. And if we social distance from the sick, we are in effect, not in effect, we are denying Christ's authority. Yeah, I mean, well, what what does power mean? It means something like ability, right? So, God has the ability to do all things, right? Um, and then, so then we have human power. So, obviously, humans have various degrees of ability to do things. And so, if you're a doctor or a scientist, obviously, we're not saying you have no power or ability to do anything. Right. Um, but ultimately, that's not what we're seeking is some cure all. Right. This is if you're out there and you're, you know, if you're a Christian and you hear about the various ways Silicon Valley is trying to make man immortal and this intrigues you, that's very um, it's very troubling because this is literally the, the ancient pagan myth. Right. This is the Gilgamesh, the, the fountain right? of youth, Gilgamesh. Right. Pa yeah. Pagans, non-Christians, have always sought to live forever outside of the grace of God. Yeah. They they want to live forever in the material world, and the Christian Christocentric vision is there is life forever, there is eternal life, but it's through Christ. It's through humbling ourselves before the cross and realizing we need a Savior. And what you're saying, Silicon Valley, they're trying to, to make life eternal through computer symbiotics and whatnot, or, mm -hmm. or the ancient people looked for the, the fountain of youth. The only answer is Christ and Christ crucified, as Paul says. Right, yeah. And so when you hear about those things, like, sure, they're interesting. I like a good sci-fi story. Sure. But it's, it's fiction, right? Um, we ultimately, the things the world is saying, we, you know, sure, I mean, you could take an interest in them, but ultimately, we reject them, right? And we, you know, God, the, the real absolute is God and his commandments, right? So if you're trying to say that, well, no, it's science, no, it's medicine, or any of these things, um, I mean you know what, we're in America, so you have the right to say and think those things. We obviously don't want to take that away from you. Um, but what you're saying is fundamentally unchristian, right? And so that's what we're trying to say. Like, well, who out there, obviously the church has a lot of problems. If, if you don't think that, then I, I really don't even know what to tell you. So who out there, like, we're just saying, like, come, let's walk towards the truth. Let's figure this out. Right, because it seems more important right now than ever. 
I talked to a, a, a minister just the other day, and I shared with him the same thing. And he said, he says, I don't understand why you are against wearing masks and social distancing in church. And I told him, I said, well, pastor, I said, we need to, we can't social distance because we're commanded to put our hands on the sick. And I reminded him of those verses and there was, he didn't have a response because what other response is there? I, I'd love to have a discussion with someone that disagrees with me because that, that sounds like it'd be an interesting discussion, but I'm not sure there's, there's any alternative position. It, this isn't one that the denominations disagree on. They all agree. You should put your hands on the sick. You should not social distance. But suddenly in 2020, the, the entire mass of denominations, they agree on a new vision of the church in which we don't put our hands on the sick, where we don't anoint them with oil, where we social distance. And this is troubling. This is very troubling. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really tough because the whole time when this first happened and the mass thing started coming, the way people acted about them, like, that seems more like a symbol than a practical scientific device. And sure, then you can find hundreds of nurses and doctors saying, yeah, no, that the mask doesn't do what you people think it does. We wear that to prevent saliva and blood transmission during operations or other procedures, right? So there's a lot of people in the scientific community and all on both sides of the aisle saying what, what, you know, what I just said. And I'm like, yeah, it really seems symbolic. And now after the last month where we watched the same governors um, who told us we have to wear the masks go out and forget the social distancing rules and be in these giant protests, these seas of people, right, where if it's going to transmit anywhere, it's through them. It seems more and more evident to me, at least, that this is a symbol and it's something that we that as Christians, we should at least be questioning, right? We, we mentioned in a previous podcast, uh, we touched lightly upon uh, the, the verse where Paul talks about our battle being not flesh and blood, that our battle is not in the material world, but our battle is a spiritual one, where the enemy fights against us. We call the enemy demons. We have different words for Satan. Perhaps a lot of Christians don't believe demons exist. Perhaps they, they've bought into a materialistic worldview. Well, the Bible is very clear. There's a battle raging on. It's not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. And is it any surprise that atheistic governors who don't believe in God commanded Christians to not any surprise? Is it any surprise that the church being up against a spiritual war, that who don't believe in God, who don't believe in Jesus, would command Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I to me, I think that's where we're at, where 
no matter where you are politically, it's really easy to despair or become angry or fearful or hateful or something in this material sense. Like, what are we practically going to do in the here and now? We, right. you know, we want to see results, right? But, but you're, you, you and my nations, we, we don't really, we're not fretting what the government is doing. We're fretting or we're concerned over what the church is not doing. Right. Yes. Yeah, he as a Christian, I, you know, I want a good political situation, just like I want a good anything, a good economy. I don't want bad things to happen to, to anyone I know. But I also know as a Christian, ultimately the schemes that mankind makes apart from God are going to fall apart and become chaotic, right? And so that's when it starts to fall apart. I think this is when you can see with your spiritual sense, with your with your mind that, oh, this was always a spiritual or cosmic sort of battle that, that's being waged. Um, and hopefully more people in the church become attuned to that. With that, unfortunately, we're at the end of the episode. We thank you for joining us. Next time, we're hoping you have another special guest on with us. Until then, may God bless you.